Hey everybody, welcome back to the Honor Kings. Um, this is Lee, and we are here with episode four of Identifying the False Prophet. Um, we have a lot to get to in this episode, so I'm going to keep the pleasantries short. Um, and we're going to speak to the Father in a word of prayer, and we're going to get into this one. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you humbly, and we ask of your guidance uh, in your word today, Father, and we thank you that we have an opportunity to gather with believers and hungry students the, the world over and around the country. Anybody that's listening anywhere, Father, we just thank you, and we thank you to, for the opportunity of your word that we get to study this. And that through our diligent effort, you will reward us by showing us what some of these things mean, Father. And we just thank you. And day by day, I'm starting to see as as you open up these prophecies to me and others. But as I'm seeing these unfold in the world around me, I just realize that perhaps your, your return is even closer than we thought, Father. Um, no man knows when it'll be and we're always to be prepared as if you're coming um but boy it sure seems close and events in my church this weekend show that your prophecies are true and we already know they're true but um when once you start understanding these books you can see it unfold in our lives around us father and we just thank you we thank you for that word we thank you for these warnings and we thank you for these opportunities to understand it but we pray for our pastors and our our church leaders, Father, that are snared up into this vicious system. Um, they, in our church, they were talking about politics this week, and that is a clear sign of the false prophet uh, in action. And it's not that I believe that, that our pastors are intentionally trying to do any of this, but at the same time, they're, they're ensnared in this system. And we just ask that for all of our pastors and all of our church leaders all over the world, that, that you open their hearts and you open their minds and open their eyes, Father, that they see what's happening. Help them understand what these prophecies are. I know they're pastors, but that doesn't mean there's none of us that know what everything in the Bible means. And they, so many of them have these seminary educations that are teaching them the wrong things to start with. And we just ask, Father, that you open their hearts to hear these things, that, that the people that are shepherding us understand where they're shepherding us. And... Um, just we we pray for our church father and we pray for all the members that everybody can just have the open heart and open mind to hear your words and understand them father holy spirit we just ask that you're with us today that you enrich us with this study that you teach us and you enlighten us into things that you want us to know in the mighty and holy name of jesus amen so we are we are resuming with bullet point six um, where he pushes to create the image, right? And in bullet point five, um, we started in Revelation 13, 14, and I used the first part of the verse, so today we're going into the second part of the verse, um, which says, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and caused that as many would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So let's quickly take a look at the wound by a sword. So, of course, this is talking about the little horn power. And earlier in this chapter, in verse uh, in Revelation 13, verse 3, talking about the little horn power, it says this. 
And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. <clears throat> so when we just take that as it were and just go to a standard dictionary. This doesn't have to be anything crazy, Strong's Concordance or anything like that. But as it were, as a dictionary um, explanation, it's seemingly or in a way. So basically it's shortening the sentence as if it were so. So you could read it, and I saw one of his heads um, that seemingly was wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So um, what what this verse is telling us is it looked fatal, but it wasn't. And as we've talked at ad nauseum on here, but it's this stuff's important. I just keep repeating these things so it sinks in. When General Berthier, Napoleon's general, um, is sent to Rome in 1798, he arrests the Pope. Um, and we know that we're able to determine this date from the 1260 prophecy from Daniel. Um, that date range is established when we anchor in on Daniel's 70 weeks date range. That one's completely provable. Um, it's all about the Messiah. We can date all of that, and by using that, we can get the date for the 1260 prophecy and the 2300-day prophecy. Um, so we know these dates are right. Um, but it seems to Europe that the tyranny is over because the papacy has been taken out completely, right? But this would not be the case as a new pope would uh, soon be appointed but the papacy would no longer have the power of the Caesars, just the ecclesiastical power. And as we had talked about before, he had the throne of the Caesars and the throne of God on earth, at least as what he claimed. So he had the political and the ecclesiastical power. But once he's arrested by General Berthier, he no longer has that political power. It's the false prophet, our beast from the earth, creating an image of the first beast that restores its power. And this has already started to happen. You know, America has built up a military to match the might of the Caesars. Our Protestant churches are spreading heresy the world over with uh, new ap apostolic reformation type movements and word of word faith and all this junk um, prosperity gospel. And since these heresies are emanating from here, we are demonstrating that we are the ecclesiastical power of the papacy. Um, and our politicians are starting to use dragon language regarding religious laws, which we'll discuss more later on. <clears throat> so that is, that's the head wound. So as I've noted in other episodes, if you want to understand this more fully, it's good to jump back to Daniel 3. Um, and as we've discussed in our King of the North series, Little Horn Power series, and elsewhere, the book of Daniel lays out the story in a repeat and enlarged fashion. So when we focus on cha in Daniel chapters 2, 3, 7, 8, 11, and 12, I know I said that fast, 2, 3, 7, 8, 11, and 12, with a little bit of chapter 5 mixed in there, we get this whole story told to us in the Old Testament already. And by understanding this, we can understand what's being said about these beasts in Revelation. Um, and it all starts with Nebuchadnezzar. 
He is the type or the real-life model of the little horn power, the king of the north, the son of perdition, the false apostle, the man of sin, the antichrist, uh, the man of lawlessness. It's all the same. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is our type. And remember, we had discussed in other episodes, but if you're new here, there is a type and anti-type system. The type is a real-life event that happened somewhere most of the time in the Old Testament. But in prophecy, it's referred to to get a point across spiritually. So Nebuchadnezzar was our type. And when we look at Daniel 3, um, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent to gather together the princes, governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, and the rulers of the provinces were gathered together under the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar set, set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, um, excuse me, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And who... And whoso falleth not down in worship shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the fiery furnace. Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, has made a decree that every man shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worship, that he shall be cast into the midst of the fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image thou hast set up. <clears throat> okay, so once again, we see Daniel 3 giving us the type for the image. So let's see the different things that we can pull from Daniel 3 in this story that helps us understand the image of the beast. First of all, he creates an image to be worshipped. This comes after receiving a dream, which Daniel interprets, fe featuring a metallic man representing four empires. And we've discussed, discussed this a whole bunch, but for recap, Daniel 2, verse 32 and on, it says, This image's head was of fine gold, that's Babylon, his breast and his arms of silver, Medo-Persia, his belly and thighs of brass, that's Greece, and his legs of iron, Rome, his feet part of iron and part of clay. So he makes his own image 
he had in, in chapter two, he had the image that God gave him in a dream. Now he's converted it to himself, right? <clears throat> and he's made this new image all of gold. He's taken all the other empires and made them gold as well. In other words, the attributes of the four previous empires will be consolidated into this image of the beast, this little horn powers beast system. <coughs> Excuse me. So the image that he sees in Daniel 2, this Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, this is a composite of the Antichrist itself. You're already getting a model of all of the attributes that the little horn power, the king of the north, the Antichrist has. It's in that image, that metallic man image. But Nebuchadnezzar has taken that image and copied it, but made it all gold. So he has stolen all of their attributes and made it into something that he demands be worshipped. Um, so Revelation 13 um, tells us this exactly, right? So, and I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and upon his ten uh, horns, ten crowns and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. blasphemy. And the beach, beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, Greece, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, Medo-Persia, and his mouth the mouth of a lion, Babylon. And the dragon gave him power and his seat and great authority. So recall that the seven heads and ten horns places this at the time of the fall of the Western Roman Empire when three of the ten kingdoms refused to accept the Pope's authority. So it shows us we're in the Roman Empire and then it tells us this beast has the features of Greece, of Medo-Persia, of Babylon. So you see that Revelation 13 here, when it talks about the beast from the sea, it is hearkening us back to the image that Daniel had in Daniel 2. Well, I'm sorry, not the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted. It is a composite. So we can look at those other empires and get more understanding of what the Antichrist little horn power is and what it's like, right? And how it applies to us and how it applies to the false prophet. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and look at some of the attributes that we can pull out of there. And we're in the, we're kind of in the religious spiritual zone right now. Later, we're going to look at more physical attributes of this stuff. So we start with Babylon. That's the first one that's given in the um, in the image. And so Babylon or Bab-El, this would translate into gateway or portal to God. Uh, John 9.10, of course, tells us that um, Jesus is the door. But some in some translations say the gate. Acts 3.2 uses the same word, Thyra, as a gate. Um, so we know that... Jesus is the true gate, but what was what were they trying to do in Babylon? They were trying to get to heaven, right, by building that tower. So um, gateway or portal to God. <clears throat> this can suggest this modern teaching that there are many ways to God, um, where we know Jesus is the only way. The world says that there are multiple ways to God, okay? <clears throat> so we will recall um, that... 
Babylon was founded by Nimrod, who's the one that attempted to build a tower to heaven. Now, I plan a Nimrod episode one day, but we'll keep it short here. Nimrod and his wife, Semiramis, end up being worshipped. When he dies, and this is just rabbit trail thing here, possibly by the hands of Esau. Remember, Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, uh, a stew in a huff, in a hurry, having no want for life at any point because he pretty much thought all was lost. Some of the non-inspired texts say it's because he killed Nimrod. And we can't say that's a fact at all. But it is an interesting thing to, you know, it's an interesting thought. It's something to contemplate. But we cannot prove that because it's not in Scripture. It's not in the 66 books. Um, But anyway, when Nimrod's dead, um, Semiramis, the wife, starts a story that in death, he impregnated her through the rays of the sun because he was now the sun god. And a child, Tammuz, was miraculously born. Now, this symbology is throughout Washington, D.C. and on your dollar bill, by the way. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. Um, and also in the Nimrod episode. But because God confused the languages and separated the land into different nations... These three got new names throughout history, and there's a whole bunch of them, but Nimrod is Osiris, Tammuz, Baal, um, Semiramis is Isis, Diana, Ashtaroth, um, Tammuz is Horus, um, which is also Baal, because the son, the husband is the son in this whacked out trinity, right? Semiramis is the husband to Nimrod, but then births Nimrod in a resurrection and calls him Tammuz. So she births her husband. I I know it's twisted and it's confusing, but Tammuz and Baal and Nimrod are the same, even though Tammuz is the son. He's also the father in this situation. I, I, I know I get that's confusing. But um, so in, they all translate into this Egyptian pantheon. And uh, we'll save a lot of that for the Nimrod show. But eventually Tammuz, again, is known as Baal. Semiramis is Astarte, Diana, Astaroth, etc. And then, oh, eventually the Virgin, Blessed Virgin Mary. So we'll, we'll discuss that here in a little bit. So that's Babylon, sun worship, the sun god Nimrod a.k.a. Antichrist, first Antichrist. Medo-Persia, they were into the Zoroastrianism, and you will see this uh, evidenced by the Pope's Triple Crown. That's where this comes from, this this uh, hell-born pagan attire that the, pap- the papacy wears, the popes wear, that triple crown, that comes from Zoroastrianism. Um, his miter hat, the one that looks like a fish opening its mouth. Uh, that fish hat or a miter cap is based on Dagon, the fish god, fish and corn god, which would also actually be Nimrod because of the language confusion. But you can see ancient carvings and bas-reliefs and all of this of Dagon, the fish and corn god, wearing the same hat. 
So the Pope is wearing this thing. <clears throat> now, Greece, Eastern Roman Empire, um, will be largely influenced by Greece. So they'll not only take out the three Gothic kingdoms that are um, resisting the papacy when it tries to get supreme control, but they will be completely and totally soaked in Greek philosophy. Um, so Romanism, this Roman Catholic system, is actually apostate Latin Christianity, which develops in Greece to start with. Okay? Um, and then Rome, starting in the first century, Mithraism is the popular pagan religion in the Western Roman Empire. And this is an offshoot or a derivative of Medo-Persia Zoroastrianism. So you have this sun worship, Zoroastrianism, uh, with this god and corn and fish gods. You have apostate Latin Christianity, and you have Mithraism, are things that are involved in this statue in Daniel too. So when Constantine forms the universal church, or Catholic church as we call it, um, he combines the pagan Western Roman Mithraism with apostate Latin Christianity of the Eastern Empire. You see, that, that's, that's what he does. He's got a problem on his hands. He needs to unite the Christians and he needs to unite the pagans together to have you know control and have peace and have all this in his empire. How does he do it? He forms a universal church, a Catholic church, combines Western Roman Mithraism with Eastern Roman Empire apostate Latin Christianity. So <clears throat> you will see this represented in Revelation as the compromising church or the church of Pergamos in Revelation 2, which corresponds to the black horsemen in Revelation 6. Our very first series was Unlocking Revelation and the Four Horsemen. And we showed that how the seven churches are the seven seals. They're the same thing. They go down. They're not what, you know, the, these seals aren't wars and famine. And even though Jesus talks about that in Matthew 24, I get that. But you have to look at the, the context. What he's, he's saying those things are going to happen. But you have to understand Revelation is not saying that. Revelation is, is a church history. And Ephesus is the first church. The white horse matches that, right? And it goes all the way down. In order of the churches, so go the seals. So the compromising church is Pergamos. Um, it's the black horseman, and it's this era in time when Constantine has taken Mithraism and apostate Roman uh, Christianity and mingled them together and compromised the word of God. Um, and just remember, Revelation is re uh, written and repeat and enlarge. Um, it's also what, what you would call a literary, it's called a chi uh, chiasm which is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated back in the uh, reverse order. It's like a mirror effect. And um, anyway, this time frame is the comp uh, compromising church area and pagan temples were converted to Christian churches, right? Semiramis, Nimrod's wife, the goddess of the, you know, the, the queen of heaven as she calls herself. 
also called Diana, Astarte, Ashura, Astaroth. Um, all those statues of, of these particular goddesses, wherever they become the Blessed Virgin Mary. Semiramis is the queen of heaven. Astarte, the queen of heaven. All of this. What do they? What do the Catholics refer to uh, the Virgin Mary as? The queen of heaven. It's because it's not Mary they're worshiping. It's Semiramis. Um, it's goddess worship, plain and simple. Uh, and if when you consider the fact that the Jesuits are the ones that run our schools, they run our entertainment um, systems and whatever, this is why you see that our, all of our superheroes and action heroes are now becoming women. Haven't you noticed that all the, the great action movies and the ninjas and the superheroes and the gunfighters and all this, all, all the ones that are really um, tough and bad are the women now doing everything in the movies, protecting the men? This is a blatant violation of Genesis and creation and the order that God has set up that the woman is a helper to the man and you know the man is a protector to the woman and all of that. that all of this is being thrown out the door by these people in goddess worship and you can read over and over and over in the bible where he's getting after his people for the goddess worship um and the jesuits you know surprise surprise they're in the middle of the whole thing there's nothing new under the sun, folks, it's, uh, as uh, Ecclesiastes tells us. It's it's all the same. It was going on then. It's going on now. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. So have you ever seen the paintings or statues of Mary holding Jesus? The These um, Renaissance-era paintings mostly, but uh, there's a sunburst or a halo around their heads. That's not Jesus, and that's not Mary. Because that halo, that sunburst, is this enlightenment. It's this Gnostic crap. It's why there. It's why there's a halo on your dollar bill. It's Nimrod. It's the sun god. So when you see this supposed Virgin Mary holding this baby, the people that the people that make these paintings and then do these things are Rosicrucians and Freemasons and. They're into this Enlightenment era that happened during the Renaissance was all pagan, satanic, Luciferian-fed stuff, the age of reason, um, philosophy, and all this stuff. Everything that takes away from God that man can be something, man can do something, you know, all of that stuff that was happening, that whole area, or that whole era in time is just Satan-soaked. And so these these pictures you see with the, the halo and everything is pure evil, pure evil. Um, you're, you are literally showing a picture of the Antichrist on your wall um, thinking it's Jesus. Um, so where am I here? And so um, even if, okay, so just... Stick with me for a second. Even if we, you're putting a painting up of Jesus, real Jesus, isn't that a violation of the second commandment to start with? Now, I'm not going to die on this hill, but he tells us not to make images, to be worshiping. And even though it's of him, 
a man made it up what it looked like. Nobody knows what Jesus exactly looked like. You're, some man is creating that and painting it, putting it on the wall, and then people are reverencing it. And it's not Jesus. You know, I mean, it's it's not Jesus. So isn't that a violation of the second commandment anyway to have pictures of Jesus on your walls? Um, for me, I believe it is. But, you know, I don't know. Everybody has to work that one out for themselves. <coughs> uh, let's see. Speaking of the sun. When I'm saying that halo around them is the sun disk, the enlightenment sun disk. Um, since Mithraism was what was intermingled with the apostate Christianity, what was the big uh, Mithra celebration? What is their, their big uh, thing that they do? Sol Invictus, which means the unconquered sun. Um, so who was the sun god, you ask? Well, remember, Nimrod was the sun god. And in this Mithraism, they are celebrating the unconquered sun day. And we're not talking S-O-N, we're talking S-U-N, as in the thing above us that is bringing light down on us. So, now remember, what did Constantine change? He changed the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. He will think to change times and laws. What? So what did he change it to? He changed it from... Saturday or, or Friday night at uh, sundown to uh, Saturday night at sundown. He changed it to Sunday, to Sunday. March 7th, 321 uh, AD, Sunday was sacred to the Roman sun god. Sol Invictus uh, was declared an official day of rest. On that day, markets were banned and public offices were closed except for the purpose of freeing slaves. So... The decree from um, Constantine on March 7th, 321, starts off, literally starts off, and it says, On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and the people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be closed. So at the end of the day, on this Sunday, we're worshiping on Nimrod Day, the sun god. The mother church... Catholic Church, the mother of harlots, uh, has spread her Mithraism into our Protestant churches today, and they accept this, which creates the image or likeness to the beast who did the same thing, right? And speaking of creating an image that reflects the original beast, since we're already worshiping on the day that the Catholic Church decided we're going to worship on and not the day that God said that we would have as our rest and worship day. Um, we're already reflecting the Roman system and the first beast. Um, but speaking of this Mithraism, what are some of the other ways that maybe we're falling in suit with what they're doing? Well, Mithraism was known to have denominations. It had all kinds of offshoots. They were all over the place um, and all had, you know, all had the same general tenet, but then had different ideas regarding, you know, specifics. So the Catholic Church is broken down into, you guessed it, denominations. It has six different liturgical rites. And within those rites, there are 24 particular churches. <clears throat> um, you know, so, so the Catholic Church already broke down. You have Jesuits, Benedictine, monks, all this stuff. I'm um, not going to go through all that, but what have we done? We've done the same thing. We have broken off. We have 
Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopal, you know, Assemblies of God, Church of God, um, Baptist, Southern Baptist, um, Seventh-day Adventist, Seventh-day Baptist. We have hundreds of different denominations floating around here. That is Mithraism. Just like worshiping on Sunday is Mithraism. So right here you see that our churches have already started to form the image of the first beast. So let's see here. So let's ask about your church here. Do you have small groups by chance? Well, um, that comes from the Jesuit education system. Remember, the Jesuits are, um, their whole purpose was to be the military wing of the Catholic Church and to fight the battle against the Reformation. So all the counter-Reformation theology that comes out there comes from the Jesuits. Um, And see, so this is where, like with, with the small groups and stuff, this is the kind of thing that we as Christians, we have to stop hearing Christianese. They use our language against us, right? Um, Christians start acting like Pavlov's dog. Uh, remember the, the Pavlov's dog? He, the dog would hear food st- uh, footsteps coming down the hall, and he w- he knew that food was coming, and he would start salivating, right? He had programmed responses to things. He was able to recognize things, and there would be a programmed response, and that's what happens here. Um, <clears throat> you know, they label a lot of things Jesus, and they get a lot of people to bite on that hook. But, you know, just because something's labeled Jesus doesn't mean it's not the devil. Now, small groups are considered ways to develop leaders to have small, intimate fellowship with other believers. Okay, great. So where's the problem with that? Well, there's one source of leadership development. It's the Holy Spirit. It's not a class. It's not a program. And it's not a seminar. Um, the Holy Holy Spirit equips, not men, right? Um, these courses and groups feature strategies which are man-derived concepts. Um, in order to develop any believer into the role that he's to play, the Holy Spirit has to be engaged for this, this sanctifying work. Why? Because only the Holy Spirit knows what's in a person's heart. Only the Holy Spirit knows what that person truly needs. It's not some one-size-fits-all fit, corporate doctrine training or whatever. Um, another reason small groups are a problem. Remember in um, John 21, Jesus has this famous uh, dialogue with Peter, and he asked Peter three times if he loves him. And after each answer, you know, after Peter responds, yes, I love you, um, Jesus responds with, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus didn't say, grab somebody from the crowd and have them feed my sheep. Uh, you know, small groups, this is what this is what happens with a small group. Instead of having Peter leading the flock as he's supposed to, you have somebody else doing it. Um, it removes your God-anointed shepherd and places guidance and teaching into the hands of whoever volunteers to lead the small group at their house. Um, And typically these small group things come in some packet that come from Rick Warren's church or, you know, some other apostate group 
that has very subtle misteachings in it. Um, and so leading these kind of things are a pastor job, period. You know, you have somebody who likely isn't very well-versed in the subject to start with guiding others into an indoctrination program. And this is where false teachings and misinterpretations and errors in people's view of Scripture happen. It's just like these popular Bible study formats. This is why I don't go to Bible study at my church anymore. Um, you read a verse, and then you go around the table, and everybody at the table gives their opinion of what this verse means. Um, this is just a breeding ground for error. Um, somebody poorly versed in Scripture can easily misunderstand something. You know, Brother Ken or Brother Tom or whatever can throw out something that just makes no sense scripturally, but there could be a new person sitting at that table that hears that and takes it and runs with it and for the next 30 years believes something incorrect, maybe even heretical about scripture. Um, but listen, you know, small groups are great for fellowship. That can't be understated. Um, they're fantastic for fellowship. And and some, some of these groups aren't about scripture. Sometimes they're about you know, knitting blankets for hospitals or support groups. There's simply a gathering for prayer, which is fantastic. Um, but when scripture's the focal point, this stuff is dangerous, and that particularly when anointed leadership is not at the helm of them, okay? So these small groups are another way that we see that we're forming the image of the beast. So the second thing... <laughs> <laughs> Gee, 37 minutes in and we're to the second thing that Daniel 3 is showing us. Uh, we get the dimensions of this image, right? It's three score cubits high. A score is 20. So three times 20 is 60. So it's 60 cubits high and it's six cubits wide. Okay. Uh, bullet point three. A command to fallen worship is given at the sound of the following instruments. The cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, which is a four-stringed harp, the psaltery, which is a triangular harp, the dulcimer, which is a drum flute or bagpipe. That's six instruments. So when we take the size of the image, 60 by 60, and consider the Im image, uh, excuse me, instruments, which signal the command to worship, we get 666. We get 666. Revelation 13, 17 to 8. And scripture says, and no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast for it is the number of the man and his number is six hundred three score and six, 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 six. Revelation 13 is connected to Daniel three once again. And when we read and understand Daniel 3, we see the mark of the beast is not a barcode. It's not a chip. It's about worship. He created his own image. He's not worshiping God. He created his own image. And with the instruments, we see that he also dictated the time the worship would happen. Again, what did Constantine do in 321 AD? He changed the Sabbath to the venerable day of the sun. He commanded people to worship a pagan deity he created and told them they would ignore the fourth commandment and worship it on the day that he chose. The mark of the beast is about worship. It's about the Sabbath. 
Our Protestant acceptance of Sunday is in fact validating the image of the beast. Now there's more. But isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? What do you guys need to understand that this Sabbath thing is real? It's a thing. Daniel 3 is showing us that he is dictating what you worship and when you worship it. You have the image of the beast. You have the number of his name. You have everything you need in Daniel 3. It's telling you what is happening. But you listen to these guys on YouTube, you know, and and on podcasts and and these mega pastors that are out there that are super famous flying around on private jets that are making our father's house a den of robbers by stealing money from people and lying to them and giving them Jesuit teaching. If you read your Bible, if you ask the Holy Spirit to help you, you will see the truth of these things. Um, let's see. And what's the, okay, so let's, let's move on. Bullet point four. Those who refuse will be cast into the fun- uh, into the furnace. That's a death decree. When they start forcing Sunday worship laws, and they will, those who refuse will be hunted and killed. Revelation thirteen fifteen. And he had the power to give life unto the image of the beast, that that image of the beast should both speak and cause as many would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Again. Revelation 13 is matching Daniel 3. Those that refuse to worship are put to death. Bullet point five. Notice who is the one who are the ones that dime out the Jews who are not following suit and false worshiping. It's the Chaldeans, right? So who are they? Well, Chaldeans. When you say the Chaldeans, or some people say Chaldeans, but when you're talking about this, this is an uh, indigenous people's group to that area, of course. But when you word study this in the Strong's Hebrew 3779, um, you get um, which refers to people of that area with the implication that they are magicians or astrologers. You know, so... It's kind of like a cultural thing. I don't know. It would. This is a very loose and not very good thing, but it's what pops into my head. It would be like saying, um, yeah, you, you know, the kind of stuff that those people in Pittsburgh do. Well, when you think about it, what, when you first think of Pittsburgh, what do you think people in Pittsburgh do? You think they make steel. Or, you know, they're, they're steel workers. So I don't know. It's, just, it's kind of like that. These people in this area are magicians and astrologers. This is where they come from. They're probably the wise men, the magi. Um, anyway, so they are astrologers and magicians. And so, uh, as we noted with the three frogs and the Egyptian magicians, right? We already talked about this. Our model, modern example here for these kind of people is the false apostles, the false shepherds, the false teachers. These are the ones faking all these supernatural God encounters to mislead people into, (coughs) excuse me, into the image of the beast. But isn't it, I mean, we're going to probably get more into this later, but, (coughs) excuse me, I'm sorry, and this is not very good podcasting with all the coughing. Isn't it interesting that the 666 in Daniel 3 is made up in part by the music, the command, 
the encouragement, the thing that pushes you into this false worship is the music, the instruments, right? That's part of it. The Revelation or uh, Daniel 3 is showing us that. So <clears throat> um, as this apostate Protestantism expands that we're seeing in front of us, we see more and more of these superstar Christian bands out there, right? Um Hillsong, Elevation, uh, Bethel. These people are getting 100 bucks a pop at stadium tours to sing gospel songs. It's something that should be ministry, not capitalism. You know, I'm sorry. And I know, I know, what, I know what our people in our church are going to say. Well, it's not a sin to be rich. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a sin to be rich. But it is a, a sin to turn your father's house into a den of robbers. These people are ripping everybody off left, right, and sideways. It's a money-making gimmick. It's corporate. It's, it's, it's economic um, thievery. I, mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm losing my, my train of thought there. But it, it's wrong is what it is. It's wrong. Don't charge me $100 to come to get one seat in a place that has 60,000 seats. How much money do you need, you know, to proclaim the word of God and to worship God? That's beyond ridiculous. And if you search your heart, you know it's wrong. You know it's wrong. Um, <clears throat> you know, and if Paul or the other apostles were here to see this, man, they'd be mortified. When did... Paul walk in somewhere and, and have his hand out saying, yeah, for a hundred bucks, I'll do this, right? He said he had the right to be paid, but he didn't, he didn't, he worked with his own hands, he said, to provide. Um, but the music experience in our churches has become the highlight for most attendees. The message being spoken by the pastors, if it's even a good message to start with, because there's no prophecy. Um, a lot of our pastors today are uh, into this prosperity thing or talking about what God's there to do for you and they won't talk about sin. I mean, there's a lot of problems there. But if there is a good message being spoken by pastors, it's taking a backseat to the music. And this music easily seeps into the believer and before long you're focusing on yourself. You're focusing on your feelings, your emotions. You might be singing songs that say something about Jesus or say something about the Holy Spirit or say something about the Father. But inwardly, these songs are becoming about you. You're like, you're singing about Jesus because that's right, Jesus. You're taking away my infirmities. You're doing this for me. You're doing that for me. You're doing the other thing for me. And that ends up being about you and how you feel about it instead of worshiping the creator of heaven and earth and worshiping him, worshiping him as what he is, the creator, not the vending machine for things that you want in this world. This stuff is very subtle. It's very subtle. And I can tell you right now, I go into my church and I'll say this, and maybe maybe there's one or two people that give me an amen, and everybody else will be like, you are out of your mind. We're in here praising. We got the Holy Spirit coursing through us. I'd be careful with that. Because when you, if you're standing up there and subconsciously you are worshiping self, you are not filling with the Holy Spirit. I'll say it again. If you are worshiping self, you are not filling with the Holy Spirit. Take that to the bank. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. 
So you, you have to be careful with this music stuff. And don't miss out on the sanctifying power of a word delivered, you know, the word delivered through a message because you just came to witness a Bon Jovi show. Um, and I assure you, before this series is ended, Bethel, Elevation, Hillsong, they will be addressed in depth. Try to make this into an hour, under an hour here and get to my last bullet point. Bullet point number six, the image in Daniel 2, which starts the whole type of the little horn power, is only four empires, right? It starts with Babylon, then the Medes, then the Greeks, and it ends with Rome. But the Roman Empire doesn't end. Did Did you catch that? The power of the Roman Empire has not fallen. Recall that the prophecy had the power of the Caesars and the, um, uh, the, excuse me, the prophecy, the papacy had the power of the Caesars and the throne of Christ. They transitioned from pagan Roman Empire to Holy Roman Empire. There were no more empires prophesied. The Holy Roman Empire is still alive. Daniel 2 says it will last until the stone cut without hands. That's the cornerstone the builders rejected. Smites the image on the feet. The stone cut without hands is Jesus Christ. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revela- or, excuse me, Daniel 12.1 refers to it as Michael stands up. Jesus stands up. He returns. He has seen enough. This means that America is no empire, at least not in and of its own. It still answers to Rome because Scripture says Rome has not relented power. This vision shows that starting at Babylon and ending with Rome at the second coming of Jesus. Now, just quickly, some might say, but there are eight empires because of what Revelation 17 says. Okay, so let's look at that for a second. Revelation 17.10. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Uh, And the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth, and uh, is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as of yet, but receive power as kings for one hour with the beast. Okay, so seven kings and five are fallen. Remember, this is being shown to John in his day. Daniel's metallic man is being shown to Nebuchadnezzar in his day, starting with his empire. There was no need to show the previous two empires. Um... So there are two other empires which opposed and held in captivity God's people before Babylon, and that is Egypt and Assyria. So the five fallen empires in order by the time of John would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Five have fallen. And it says one is during John's time, okay, we all we already know that is who was oppressing 
the Holy Land at that time. It's the Romans. That is the Roman Empire, but more specifically, this is important. You can't conflate these. It's the pagan Roman Empire that is still under the rule of the Caesars. So that is the number six empire. The one yet to come is the Holy Roman Empire when the Western Roman Empire falls and the papacy rises to supremacy, regathers the 10 pagan nations of the former Western Roman Empire, and it becomes the Holy Roman Empire. That is the number seven empire or king. Then, as we have spoken many times, Napoleon's general arrests the Pope in 1798. This creates a deadly wound talked about here in Revelation. The papacy reigns supreme for 1260 years. That's what it means by he must continue a short space. Number seven reigned for 1260 years, the Holy Roman Empire. Thus, he must continue a short space. The beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, is the Holy Roman Empire again. As the beast from the earth or fallen American Protestantism raises it back up. Okay, so are you following that? You have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece are the five that have already fallen by John's time. Number six, the one that is, is the pagan Roman Empire. When the Caesars go down and the Roman Western Empire falls, the papacy rises in power, becoming the seventh empire but he's taken out by general bertier he continued a short space just as the verse said number seven must continue a short space then he's taken out but america civil and religious liberty creates an image of the beast and restores his power and he comes back the eighth King is of the seven. He was before General Berthier showed up. He he was. Then he wasn't. Now he is again. So the papacy in the Holy Roman Empire are number seven and number eight. It's just like a president. Just because Barack Obama served two presidencies. I don't remember what, I honestly don't remember what, was he 44, 43 and 44? So um, he wasn't just president 43. He was 43 and he was 44. So in this case, same way, this is number seven, this is number eight. So that is where all the empires lay. Those are the ones that are actually part of all this. Um. Oh, I'm sorry, did I say the, the ten kings which received power for one hour? I don't know if I just babbled through that and said that or not. But the ten kings that received power for one hour are the ten pagan kingdoms from the fallen Western Roman Empire. that are gathered back up by the papacy to form the Holy Roman Empire. <clears throat> and as we've discussed before, yes, there are ten that received power, but three of them previous. They, they refused to cooperate. They were destroyed by the Eastern Roman Empire and led way to the papacy gaining supreme control. 
so that's going to end, and I'm sorry for the coughing. Um, that's going to end episode four. I'm going to call it part A because um, we didn't even get through the first bullet or for the, uh, through the context of this one bullet point, the image. So uh, I'm going to cut it there at uh, the ripe young age of 56 minutes and 17 seconds right now. Um, and then I'm just going to turn around and uh, hit record again. Um, and I, w- I just want to fit all this through there. Sorry, Troy, for everybody. The prayer for this one, include this is one episode. I'm just stopping and restarting. So the prayer at the beginning of this episode is the continuing on to be the prayer for the next episode as well. Um, but we're just going to jump back into it and keep rolling. That's it, everybody. Thanks for listening to um, this episode. Get ready for the next one because it's coming right on the tail. See you guys.